We're in this series, and it'll continue for quite a while at the pace we're going, but I'm not in a hurry. Um, We're asking the question from the book of James, how then shall we live? That was a question that comes up for the Christians living in the first century who were living in distressed times, wondering how do you live when you're under pressure, when you're being persecuted, when your family is having all kinds of uh, difficulties? How do we live? What are we supposed to do? And this morning we are going to talk about, in particular, what it means to be religious. We talk about religion and people who are religious. And I would like to say this from the very start, that our faith is really not just a religion. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet, James will speak of our faith as being part of religion. And that is what we are going to look at this morning. Let me ask some questions. What do runaway horses, mirrors, double-mindedness, wind-driven waves, and dirty laundry have to do with being religious? And the answer to that is very simple. Nothing. James has argued that there are some who think they are religious. But he is going to say their religion is worthless. He has unveiled for us this brand of religion, this foolery, where they claimed that they sin because God has tempted them to sin. Others quickly would glance into the word of God and then walk away forgetting their desperate need for Christ. In other words, James accused the self-righteous, the self-righteous religious man of being a spiritual phony, sham, charlatan, and hypocrite. Wow. Those are straightforward thoughts, and they don't come just from me. In their own selective perception and estimation, these religious um, wannabes, uh, they thought they were just a little better than everybody else. Those are the people that ran into Jesus. They thought themselves better because they polished their outward a religious persona. And they kept arbitrary, visible laws while their hearts were rotting inside with the putrid smell of death. Now, if anyone was qualified to expose the inner thoughts and behavior of self-righteous, pharisaical, religious people... You know who that would be? James. He was surrounded by scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees in Jerusalem. Um, They were an angry, critical, self-righteous, condemning religious people. His brother, that is James' brother, Jesus, spoke very directly to them as well. 
Once he called these spiritual phonies whited sepulchers. In other words, they were painted on the outside as looking very religious. But inside, Jesus said, there's death. Death in the sepulcher. So James wrote this epistle to warn Jewish Christians not to be persuaded by these religious people with critical attitudes. And the same danger exists today. There are those who are impressed with themselves, their Bible knowledge, their stature in the community, even in the church, their pious rhetoric, their tireless service, their regular attendance at big events, Bible studies, worship services, while in reality, they're dying on the inside. Jesus definitely had their number. He certainly knew what was going on inside these people. He spoke in a parable in Luke chapter 18. These incredible words about the self-righteous. The man who has religion without Christ. The man who appears to be righteous but is not. He gives us his parable. Let's look at it. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. He's from the outside group. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Jesus just nailed that one. He didn't say he just prayed to the Lord. But he was praying with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. There is the attitude. This is the guy who is self-righteous, who in many ways might appear to be very religious. Then there's the tax collector. He's standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, that is the the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus spoke so straightforwardly. He spoke the truth. He saw what other people didn't see. And with this same conviction, James is going after religion gone to seed. He did this by giving contrasting examples of worthless religion to true religion. So there are going to be two parts to James's words. Here's what he says. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. 
without value. Then religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Now we find examples. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice we have these two contrasting religious views. James begins by taking on what he would call the worthless religion. What do these people think? And this is what he says. He says they think they are religious. Uh, The key word here is think. Because this is deception, self-deception at its worst. James uses the word religious to describe pious, devout practitioners. It's not a negative term. It's negative if what one is practicing and what is, uh, somebody is devout for is without Christ. Uh, There were those whose religion was worthless who were strict advocates of meticulous observance of selected visible demands of the law that they could try to keep while conveniently neglecting the sinful attitudes and the thoughts of the heart and mind. Looking, in other words, at the exterior rather not even taking note of what's going on inside. This kind of religion Jesus warned about in Matthew 6.1. Beware of practicing, living, grandstanding your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward in heaven from your Father. Wow. If it isn't conformity to select rules and regulations of the law, then what is it God wants of us? What does he require? Well, Micah 6a answers that question very clearly. The prophet says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. And to love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. That's what he requires. Rather than burnt offerings and mild or mindless religious rituals. The Lord desires us to show mercy. Justice towards others. As well as have an intimate relationship with him. In other words where there is true faith. There can be and should be no reliance upon any of our works or rituals of men to find acceptance with God. Only Christ imputed or his righteousness granted, declared to us can justify repentant sinners in God's sight. No matter how good you look, no matter how many good things you've done throughout your your life, it doesn't add up. There's only one thing that counts for God in acceptance, and that is Christ's righteousness 
that's given to us. These people that James is referring to, is, I could use a, 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 maybe a, another term, uh, being just religious, I would call them grace robbers. Glory killers. Um, biblically, prescribed religious rites and rituals were never given to make men righteous. But rather, these rites and rituals that we find are to show our need for Christ and his righteousness, i.e., the sacrifices. All the things there were to show that my righteousness was insufficient. What was needed is a sacrifice that God would provide, a lamb. And that lamb was Jesus Christ. Jesus warned those who prided themselves on their public charitable deeds not to sound a trumpet. Every time they did something good for others. Instead he advised them. Let not your left hand. Know what the right hand. Is doing. But keep your works. Secret. He also attacked the hypocrisy. Of those who love to display their. Spirituality. By standing in the synagogue. And street corners. Praying out loud to be seen by men. You perhaps have seen some of that before. It's the display of religiosity. Now, Jesus was not condemning public prayer. But prayers motivated to be seen of others. To be motivated by self-righteous Glory robbing. Instead they were to pray. He said behind closed doors. So as not to appear. Even religious. Or righteous. My grandmother. Grace who I never got to meet. Who died before. I was even born. Had a profound influence. On my family. She had her own designated. Private place for prayer. And it was a hall closet. She was a short, energetic woman with a huge love for Christ. She regularly told her family of six kids. And I know this is from the words of my mom. How she was cautioned. She said, when I go into my prayer closet, don't disturb me. Even if relatives drop by. Just tell them when I'm through praying. They're welcome to join us when we go to church. This woman prayed not only for her six kids. And all that they were going through. But she was praying for future grandkids. Of which none of us obviously had been born. The daughters and sons hadn't even been married yet. Had children. That's a woman who understood the power of prayer. 
Man, I'm so glad for people like that in my life that I even never met. Because when she prayed, she was praying for me. James next claimed that strict observance to religious rules and rituals are useless if their tongues are wagging like serpents ready to strike their next victim. So this is a hard one for us. If our rhetoric is not bridled, under control, then what you claim doesn't count. You can say, well, I'm religious. I go to church. I'm a Christian. Do us all a favor, myself included. If you're a gossip, a liar, a slander, openly cursing God, don't tell people you're Christian, okay? Do us a favor. Because James says that your religion, my religion, is worthless. These are hard scenes. So one glaring characteristic of worthless religion is someone who doesn't even bridle their tongue. If a man's tongue is unconstrained, flapping in the breeze, or unbridled, James says, he deceives his heart, thinking he's not accountable for his words. True faith is intended to bring the whole man, not just his actions, but even his words into obedience to Christ. The unbridled tongue is known for gossip, lies, profanity, and slander. A man is self-deceived, says James, if he prides himself on being religious, but curses, mocks, gossips, and backbites one minute, and then enters worship thinking that his praise is acceptable to God. I don't say these words uh, out of my own background or my own thoughts, but Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 12. Listen to him. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you shall be condemned. Now we know that for a Christian, there's therefore now no condemnation, correct? We know also that our words do not justify. What he's trying to say is that those who have a bridal tongue demonstrate that they have been justified and they're not condemned. But the unbridled tongue demonstrates that they haven't been justified and are condemned. Um, An unharnessed tongue is characteristics of such things as bucking broncos who raise up in defiance against anyone who seeks to tame them. Their voice is like that of a donkey, like that of a horse. Um, I'm a SoCal guy, born here in Orange County, 
so I don't come from a huge, um, uh, how would I say, background of horses and cattle and uh, the ranch kind of thing. I Yeah, there was Rancho Santa Margarita, you know, things like that. But uh, no, I was, I was one of you guys. And uh, I remember being invited to go horseback riding a number of years ago, actually in the Santa Ana Riverbed. And a family friend took me to an old riding stable. And he saddled me up on a dirty old white horse who had a notorious reputation for being ornery and stubborn. To this day, I don't know if my friend did this on purpose. I think he did. I was told not to give him his head, but to pull back hard on the reins when I got halfway on the trail because he might start to turn and run for the stable. The horse had that habit. Wildly running back to the barn. They said his mouth was so calloused that he resisted any guidance from his riders. So they gave me that horse. And I should have gotten off or never gotten on as soon as I heard that. But I was put on that horse. And sure enough, once I got on the trail, where the horse could begin to look back at the barn, we were off. He was stampeding as fast as he could. And... uh, The horse had his head down in utter defiance at my attempts to try to rein him back. And when I yanked back hard to stop him, guess what he did? You already know, don't you? He came to a a stop and then he raised up and tried to buck me off. Then he would kick back, he'd raise up. I was born in Orange County. We don't have things like that. I didn't know what to do with that. And then off he went again, as fast as he could. No matter what you did with his, the reins, it didn't affect him because he had a calloused mouth. Fortunately for me, a trail boss saw my predicament and he started pounding the leather and he came right alongside me and he grabbed the the uh, harness there, the horse's bit, and we came to a screeching stop. And I got off as quickly as I could. And I walked all the way back. I didn't want to ride a horse. I didn't want anything more to do with a horse who had a calloused, unbridled tongue. And I must admit... I still feel the same way today about those who have callous mouths running wild. So what does an unbridled horse have to do with authentic Christianity? Nothing. The authentic Christian, however, is recognized by a bridle tongue. A bridle tongue is evidence of a bridled heart. That's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Before the wise speak, as he's talked previously in this chapter, they are quick to listen, but slow to speak. As they listen, 
they ask themselves these kinds of questions. Are my words true? Are they timely? Are they kind? Are they edifying? Are they glorifying Christ? And is it time to speak? Or should I just listen more? I could ask those questions more frequently. Slow listeners who are quick to speak usually are quick to anger. An unbridled tongue reveals an unbridled heart. I must confess that recently I have had a short fuse. Do you ever get to that place? <laughs> and I hate it. I don't like it. I wish that I could just just say the best, say what's edifying, what's good, but I found myself with the anger coming up. So when I say these things, I'm not saying that this is a call to perfection. It's a call to obedience. So when you know that your tongue is unbridled, that's when you say, whoops. And uh, don't excuse it away. I have to deal with that. See, the problem with the tongue is that it betrays What's in her heart? For the tongue reveals what I'm storing away in here. That's kind of sad to think that my heart would harbor those things. The Proverbs speak to this issue as well. They contrast the words of the wise with the words of the wicked. Or the words of the righteous and the words of the unrighteous. In Proverbs 10, 20, verse 20, 21. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Refined, worthy. The heart of the wicked is of little worth, little value. The lips of the righteous, they feed many. But fools die for lack of sense. Well, the Proverbs just have a way of, you know, going right to the heart of the issue. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight also describes the unbridled heart this way. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So those who claim to be religious, but have an unbridled tongue, they're deceiving their hearts thinking they are religious. James has already given to us examples of self-deception in this chapter. His first example in verse 16 was that one who blamed God for his sin is self-deceived. The person is out of touch with his own sinful inclinations to blame God for my sin. We sin because we're sinners. James made it clear God can't personally be tempted to sin, nor will he ever tempt anyone to sin because he is infinitely and immutably, unchangeably holy. 
Likewise, the one who hears God's word and rejects the truth and walks away from it is deceiving himself, thinking he doesn't need to see what the scriptures say about it. How painful it is this morning to talk about um, an unbridled tongue. Uh, if you were talking on a, on a, a, a monitor here and I say this would be no, feeling no guilt or over here feeling very guilty. If we talk about an unbridled tongue, you know where the audience goes? Here. Because we know our inclination. And by the way, James is not going to just address it now. He's going to have even more to say in the book. Because it's that dominant, that much a problem in the life even of a Christian. Um, James now turns to the worthy religion. A religion that has value. Verse 27, chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled. That's a worthy religion. Before God the Father is this. The examples. Demonstration of it. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Remember I told you that it, earlier that after the service you can apply the sermon? That is, I could uh, put in there uh, to visit orphans and widows and to give to the homeless. To give to those who are sick. We could go on. Those who have a religion worth believing can stand before God. Pure And undefiled. Certain of that. Because of Christ. They are acceptable to him. Because they have been cleansed. By the blood of Christ. And where one has been declared righteous. Pure. Before God. Undefiled. These are those who should have hearts. That are pure and undefiled. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One of the strange inclinations of our sinful flesh or nature is our love to look and sound religious. You say, is that out of our own sinful nature? Absolutely. When we want to appear religious, when we want to sound religious, the heart, therefore, is so self-deceived. It just, our hearts are deceived above all things, and they're desperately wicked. Do you find yourself in your prayer time praying to the Lord and then all of a sudden it's like a a news flash goes over here and takes you over there and you're thinking, how did I get over there? I was trying to pray to the Lord. Then all of a sudden there is a thing across the screen of your mind and you're thinking about this. I, I hate that. I'm trying to say, Lord, I'm really trying to pray but I'm all over. I got spiritual ADD. And I want to offer pure, undefiled worship to the Lord, but I'm battling my mind. I think that's common. Jesus clarified 
those who are spiritual counterfeits. He clarified the intent and the spirit of the Lord, of the law. Why did God give us the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. There you go. Where there is true religion, there should be an authentic love for God that will overflow in loving our neighbor as ourselves. The man who claims to love God but doesn't have love for others, James said, you're self-deceived. Christ's words echo in 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, consuming passions of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. He is not tempting us. I'm tempted by my own flesh. And the world is passing away. And the rest of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus also identified the hypocrisy of a personal religious belief that encourages trying to appear spiritual when fasting. <laughs> there are some people even today, who appear, want to appear religious. And one way to do that is, if you don't mind me kind of showing you what it is, it's something like this. Does that look very spiritual? And notice, that's not the way Jesus Smiled. He didn't go around. I think if you saw Jesus, you'd be absolutely amazed to see that he had a huge smile on his face. Because love is being exuded. There are some people who think that to look spiritual, to be a spiritual person, you must be weaned on a, a dill pickle. That's a, that's a part of the spiritual thing I just don't get. I'm sorry, I don't get it. It's, it's sort of a thing that has, has swept over some people. Jesus taught, if you want to fast, comb your hair. Uh, wash your face. Don't appear to be doing anything other than going about your regular routine. Rather than in time of fasting... Oh, man, I'm I'm suffering for Jesus here today. I could use a hamburger. But, you know, because of my love for Jesus, I'm I'm counting all loss for him. Jesus said, comb your hair, wash your face, and go about the day as if it was any other day. Because, you see, false religion, worthless religion, tries to appear spiritual when in reality they're not. Hmm. True Christianity 
true, authentic Christianity will be evident by practical acts of compassion and mercy towards the needy. Really? Here he goes. They're distinguished by visiting orphans and widows. I found this very fascinating to once again visit this text. The word visit here does not mean dropping by their house or collaring them um, uh, on the street for a quick little uh, conversation. But the word visit actually comes from a Greek word that may be familiar to us. You know what that word is? Episkopos. Presbytery. Overseers. Elders. That's fascinating. So visiting here is in the context of the oversight of orphans and widows. And I suggest by the elders of a church. This was the concern of the apostles after Pentecost. They appointed seven godly men who, for right now, for our purposes, they were like deacons. And they were appointed to care for the practical needs of Hellenistic widows. They needed help, and the apostles, because of their incredible schedule and commitments, were neglecting those women, at least they were accused of it. So they appointed deacons to, in particular, oversee the needs of widows under the authority of the apostles. Jesus said, when we demonstrate practical love for needy brothers and sisters, we're doing it as unto him. I want us to ponder that before we go too far with this and conclude here. How can he say that? When you give a cup of cold water, you're giving it as unto me. The reason is because Jesus intimately was acquainted and identified with the poor. He was poor. He became poor so we could become rich. When we give food and clothing, let's say to the homeless, we are to give to them as if it was Jesus in need of these things. If we saw Jesus sleeping on a street, would we stop? Would we offer him our help? Now, I already know, I've heard all the considerations and excuses we give. We'll set those aside for right now. But what I want to say is, but keep in mind, do we really consider that serving others is a way of serving Christ? Um, Psalm 68 talks about our Lord this way. He's the father of the fatherless and the protector of the widow is God in his habitation. Notice his identity with these people. Isaiah says, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. There's justice for them. 
Hebrews 13, 3, a New Testament passage. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, as if you could have been there. And those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Those brothers and sisters who have been mistreated, you are to help and care for them because it could have been you. And if they are believers, they're part of the body of Christ. We are to help one another. These exhortations are relevant and applicable to the church today. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. One of the most haunting verses in all the Bible that Jesus spoke are these. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And those who have an authentic faith will also have a deep desire to be unstained by the world. Notice our love reaches out to other people, but our love for Christ also causes us to investigate our lives to see whether they are pure and undefiled. That's what should distinguish us. Is our love for one another and the purity of our life. Those with this authentic faith want their lives to show Christ. You say, well, how can they do that? How do I do do that? I'm having a hard time praying. I'm having a hard time living the Christian life. I'm struggling. Here's David's recommendation. How can a young man, young woman, old guys, Keep his way pure by guarding it, your heart, your life, according to your word, God. I have stored up your word. Someone said, I have treasured up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. The study of God's word, the hearing of God's word is just but the beginning. It's storing it, memorizing it, meditating upon it. That's why Bible studies and things like that are intended to make God's word practical and real. You can talk it through with each other. Help each other work through this. Authentic Christianity is not a runaway mouth, but a mouth that's bridled. Authentic Christianity is not to be confused with the world's values and standards, but rather by purity, and an undefiled life. Our credibility in the community is our love for one another and our care for those in need, not the beauty of our buildings and not the multiplicity of our programs. That's what the watching world is looking. Is your message true? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, then let me see, how is your life any different than the guy down the street who says he has no religion. 
I think you know where this is coming from too. So I'm going to ask this question that only you can answer. Is your religious life worthy or unworthy? By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what it comes down to. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. It is truly like a sword. A sharp two-edged sword, it pierces to the inner parts of our lives and exposes some of the terrible things that are characteristic of our fleshly nature. Father, we do not want to leave here this morning feeling the burden, the weight of guilt. That's not the purpose for your law. Your purpose is to remind us of our desperate need for Christ. Father, we want to leave this morning with joy and thanksgiving that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. That we shall be with you forever. That we are declared righteous through faith in Christ. Not by any works of ourselves. So as your people are contemplating these things, if there is sin in our life, if our tongue has cut through other people, stabbed other people. We ask you to forgive us. We know we can be forgiven if we confess our sins. You can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We constantly are in need of of that. But I pray, Lord, as we uh, close our thoughts here this morning, that there will be this overwhelming sense of your presence in our lives that we could live a life that's pure and undefiled. We don't talk like other people. That we build other people up, not tear them down. That we give to those in need. Even to those who are homeless. To the widows. And to orphans. Lord, it could be us. But only by your grace. Are we able to give anything to anybody? I stand before all and ask you to forgive me for not having as compassionate a heart as I should for others. Lord, I pray that you will uh, give us all hope and assurance that Christ is enough. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.